Section twenty one of Neoplatonism by Charles Big. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter twenty one. Vision. Intellectual or aesthetic virtue leads men up to intelligence, into the realm of truth, of beauty, and of freedom. Here the soul is truly free. It can do what it wishes, unimpeded by misleading desires, by hostile wills, or adverse circumstances. There is no law of God to be carried out at any cost of self-sacrifice in the salvation of the brethren or the improvement of the world. Providence can do all this for himself. Man's duty is to unite himself with God by mounting upwards and leaving the world behind. The kingdom of God is meditation. Sense is our messenger, intelligence our king, and we are kings when we are like him. Life is happy there. It is never weary when it is pure still even in the intellectual life there are two stages in the first god's laws are written upon the soul five three four we know god know him perfectly but we discern him as a glorified image of ourselves projected before the eyes as an object of contemplation five eight eleven we know him but we know him as another as something that we possess and therefore that has been given even this is a high grace the soul sees god in painless travail and the birth of his son we can understand this plotinus sits down in his armchair closes his eyes and with his inner vision sees the whole realm of knowledge spread out before him it is a conscious but not a vividly conscious state for he tells us in this connection that in perception acuteness and agreeableness stand in inverse relation the most pungent sensations are those of pain the things that we know best and that are best worth knowing do not excite us like unfamiliar or less worthy objects five eight eleven the ego has no senses but we ought not to be content to rest here there is a higher stage in which we are full of god become the beautiful and intelligence in which we leave all images even the most glorious return into ourselves and see god there by direct vision as the second person of the trinity beholds the first to this subject Plotinus constantly recurs. It was to him the crown and keystone of all knowledge and all virtue, their perfection and their proof. If the one is a mere hypothesis, everything becomes uncertain. He must be in some sense knowable, and he could be known only by being seen or felt. We will translate or condense the more important passages on this interesting topic. First as to the possibility of vision, 5, 3, 14. We can tell what he is not, but what he is we cannot tell, so that we are driven to describe him by his operations. But there is no reason why we should not have him, even if we cannot describe him. Those who are inspired, those who are possessed, know this much, that within them they have something greater than themselves, even if they do not know what. From what they feel, from what they speak, they have some conception of that which moves them, as of something different from themselves so it is with us when we use the pure intelligence it is illustrated by the act of sight five five seven we see two things the sensible form and the light that makes it visible but we should not know that we saw the light unless we saw the form so intelligence sees being by light given by the one it must turn away from all objects and contemplate this light but the analogy of the eye will carry us still farther for the eye has light in itself, that light which you see when you squeeze your eyelids. The intelligence must concentrate itself on this inner light. 
we must go up then further to the good one six seven for which every soul craves those who have seen it know what i say how beautiful it is for it is desirable as good and we yearn towards it but we attain to it by climbing up and turning towards it and stripping off the outer garments that we put on in our downward course those who go up to holy shrines must cleanse themselves and put off their old vesture and enter in naked till having left behind all that is alien to the god with their pure selves they see the pure deity sincere simple clean on whom all things depend towards whom all things look and in whom they are and live and think for he is the cause of life and intelligence and being if we can but see him with what love shall we be filled with what desire longing to be united with him with what joy shall we exult what then is the way how shall one behold that ineffable beauty which abides in the inmost sanctuary and comes not forth lest any profane eye should see it courage let him that is able press into the holy place leaving behind the sight of the eyes and not turning back to gaze upon the bodily charms that once attracted him for when we see material loveliness we ought not to run after it but to know that it is an image a trace a shadow and flee to that which is the archetype for if one hastens to embrace as true the fair image reflected on the water like hylas he sinks into the stream and is seen no more so he who sets his affection on earthly beauty and will not let it go falls not with body but with soul into abysses dark and horrible to the intelligence where he is blind and abides in hades and will dwell with the shadows that he clung to here let us fly then to our dear fatherland this is the exhortation of truth but how fly and how mount up even as the master plato says in a parable that odysseus flew from the witch circe or from calypso willing not to stay for any visible delights or any sensual beauty and our fatherland is the place from which we came and our father is yonder but what is the vehicle and what is the track thou needest not go afoot for feet carry men hither and thither from land to land nor shalt thou get thee ship or chariot leave all this and look not back but close thy eyes as it were and get thee a new sight wake up that vision which all have but few employ what then does the inner vision see on first waking it cannot clearly discern those bright objects hence we must train the soul by itself first of all to see beautiful habits then beautiful works i do not mean works of art but the works of good men then behold the soul of those that do beautiful works now how art thou to see the beauty of a good soul go to thyself and look and if thou findest that thou art not yet beautiful as the sculptor of a statue that is to be beautiful chips and files away making this smooth and that pure till he brings out a lovely face on his statue so do thou chip off what is superfluous straighten what is crooked cleanse what is dark and make it bright and cease not to labor at thy statue till the divine radiance of virtue shine forth till thou behold self-control mounted upon her holy pedestal if thou hast become virtue and hast seen thyself and walked chastely with thyself if thou hast nothing that hinders thee from in this way becoming one naught foreign mingled with thy inner self but art wholly true light not measured by size not limited by shape nor yet swollen to infinitude but without dimensions of any kind as being greater than every measure and better than aught that has quantity if i say thou art this and seest thyself and art sight be of good cheer mount up for thou needest no guide and look with all thy might
elsewhere five five three the vision is compared to a royal procession this nature intelligence is god a second god who shows himself before we can behold the first the first sits above on intelligence as on a glorious throne which depends on him for it was right that he should be mounted not on the soulless nor immediately on soul but that there should be an ineffable beauty to go before him as when some great king appears in state first come those of less degree then those who are greater and more dignified then his bodyguard who have somewhat of royalty in their show then those who are honoured next to himself and after all these the great king himself appears suddenly and all pray and do obeisance all that is who have not gone away before satisfied with the glorious pageant that preceded the king he is king of kings and father of gods those to whom this vision is granted despise even thought six seven thirty five which before they delighted in for thought is a kind of movement but in the vision is no movement one who had entered into a palace rich and beautiful through its richness would gaze with wonder on all its varied treasures like psyche in the palace of cupid till he caught sight of the master of the house but when he beholds him who is far more lovely than any of his statues and worthy of the true contemplation he forgets the treasures and marks their lord alone he looks and cannot remove his eyes till by the persistence of his gaze he no longer sees an object but blends his sight with the thing seen so that what was object becomes sight and he forgets all other spectacles the vision is not to be regarded as unfruitful it is contact with the divine and in this union the perfect soul begets like god himself beautiful thoughts and beautiful virtues all these things the soul conceives when filled with him six nine nine it is a special grace and being the self-manifestation of the one it can be given only by him whom it reveals the way is prepared by moral purity by art and knowledge but these things only lift us as it were out of the depths of a mine onto the plain of earth the shining of the sun must come to us all we can do is to fit ourselves for his coming and wait patiently for the dawn we cannot force god we must be quiet he is within yet not within we must not ask whence for there is no whence for he never comes and he never goes but appears and does not appear wherefore we must not pursue him but wait quietly till he show himself only we must make ourselves ready to behold as the eye awaits the dayspring and he swims above the horizon from the ocean as the poets say and gives himself to our gaze five five eight several points may be noticed in this description of the vision it is accompanied by a complete suspension of all external consciousness the soul does not know whether it is in the body or not it comes suddenly this is repeatedly emphasized we are never told distinctly how long it endures as long as the soul will or can is the most definite phrase employed saint teresa's trances are said to have lasted about half an hour it is rare plotinus tells us that he had often enjoyed it four eight one from porphyry's account it would appear that he was entranced about once a year at any rate towards the end of his life porphyry himself had seen the vision but once it was not attended by any sense of fear st john of the cross passed through the direst anguish of soul before he beheld the essential truth nakedly in itself but plotinus always speaks of the revelation as attended by joy unspeakable the vision was not pictorial it was the manifestation of the formless one 
and could not therefore come in any shape however majestic in this it differs from the visions of the old testament prophets which often as in the case of isaiah and ezekiel presented definite forms and scenes to the eye of the soul some of the medieval mystics regarded these definite and particular manifestations with great suspicion as possible delusions of the evil one they were aware that fasting and sleeplessness with which they were only too familiar will produce hallucinations visits of the devil or phantasms of sensuous and enticing delights and were wisely on their guard the neoplatonists of the platinian group were ascetic but not at all in the same sense as the christian monks their diet was spare but wholesome they were on friendly terms with the physician and took reasonable care of their bodily health they had little to fear from those airy fancies whether seductive or horrible which are bred of enfeebled nerves or a disordered stomach lastly no words were heard there was no voice of the lord saying go and tell this people the revelation was not communicable it was granted to the individual soul for his own comfort and edification it is true that the seer became a witness he could say thenceforth i have seen and know and his vision made him a holier man in this indirect sense the manifestation of the spirit was given to profit withal to some extent this is true of all prophecy but on the christian prophet revelation laid a burden woe is me if i preach not the gospel whereas the effect of the neoplatonist vision was to draw the seer from the world of action preaching is just as contingent just as unfree as any other mode of dealing with the external and the wise man will avoid it christian mystics may have fallen into the same error but only by denying their principles when plotinus speaks of waiting for the revelation he perhaps does not mean that the man is to sit with eyes shut and hands folded this of itself would be pressing god what he seems to inculcate is that there should be absolutely no desire even for the all desirable the believer must put himself absolutely into the hands of god he is always meditating and suddenly when he least expects it the palace doors will be opened and the king will step forth it has been said that the agnostic deity is really the same as the platonist matter or no thing and is not this equally true of the one plotinus emphatically denied this matter and the one agreed in being formless but in nothing else the former is unreal the latter is more real than all reality the former is mere potentiality the latter is power of the former we have but a vague disquieting sense as of something shapeless horrible lawless and evil the presence of the latter brings with it the sweetest rapture if we cannot explain we can see it touch it feel it we can know it in this sense even better than other things because it is our true self our inmost personality we are in it it is the fullness of life this also cannot be defined or communicated what is perfect health there is nothing vague or indefinite about it yet it does not admit of description revelation is the revelation of a presence of a personality and without denying the possibility of revelation altogether we can hardly say that the vision of plotinus is inconceivable but two questions force themselves upon us is what he says here sane or not sane and is it a necessary part of his system the first is by no means easy to answer plotinus shared although only to a limited extent the superstition of his age but his superstition his belief in demons and in magic has nothing whatever to do with his vision in practice the two are wholly disconnected and if there is any link between them it can only be one of historical sequence of more or less remote causation 
his intellect was singularly acute and logical and he was as porphyry tells us by no means an unpractical man so far as he chose to entangle himself in matters of business yet he was a visionary there can be no doubt that the experiences he describes are real nor are they unique nor do they betoken an unhealthy mind or body not to speak of st paul who was as sane a man as ever lived we find the same singular phenomenon in so thoroughly modern a book as the in memoriam the great point is that the trance of plotinus was in no way mechanical or self-induced if this be a fact his vision stands in a different class from the torpor produced by whirling movement or gazing on a bright object or any form of mesmerism he himself believed it to be a divine manifestation the point may be left to the judgment of the reader all that we will insist upon is that plotinus was by no means a besotted fanatic but did the vision belong to his system or is it a mere accretion whose roots are elsewhere we may say with confidence that it springs not from his philosophy but from his religion we have already seen something of the history of the doctrine it rested upon facts philo found an instance of the divine intoxication in the hebrew prophets plutarch in the pythoness or the corybantes the pythagorean seized upon the idea as opening the only possible way in which the one could be known and the egyptian plotinus fixed it in the forefront of his creed but it was not really necessary this indeed is proved by the fact that neoplatonism in all its essential features exists in our own days as idealism but without this mystical element the modern disciple of plotinus insists that the supreme unity the synthesis of all antitheses can be known in other ways but why then does plotinus lay such stress on this particular kind of knowledge to this it may be replied that he does not represent the vision as an indispensable condition of the spiritual life a man might dwell in the divine intelligence where subject and object are one might enjoy happiness practice all virtues and possess all knowledge yet conceivably he might in this life never enjoy the beatific vision yet he held it up before man's eyes as a hope that all ought to cherish and whether the vision as he conceived it be sane or not there can be no doubt that this way madness lies in individual cases it might be wholesome but as a system it is necessarily deadly a host of unclean spirits sloth presumption self-delusion imposture come flocking in and the very foundations of intelligence and even morality are destroyed the christian church also believes in a beatific vision when the saints will see face to face when they will be like god and see him as he is but she keeps this hope against the great day and while steadily asserting that some holy souls have been privileged to see things unspeakable she forbids her children to think that in this life they can scale the summit of all things here we see in a glass darkly none knoweth the father save the son for others the vision is in christ not immediate and even this conditioned vision who can exhaust but the strength of the church lay in her possession of a revelation and one and probably not the least among the motives of plotinus was the desire to outbid her End of section 21section 22 of neoplatonism by charles big this librivox recording is in the public domain chapter 22 porphyry the successors of plotinus differ from their great master in many remarkable ways about plotinus there is a high and fine enthusiasm a noble conception of the divine and a grand faith in the possibilities of man 
man's feet are in the mud but his head reaches up to the one hence it is possible for him to attain to perfect communion with the fountain of life later neoplatonists took a less sanguine view an illimitable hierarchy of beings extends from god to earth man may climb as high as the angels but not beyond plotinus like all his school is tinged with scholasticism the commentator on sacred texts but his method is singularly free he follows the spirit not the letter and borrows nothing that he does not transform imagination in him is more than logic his results are consistent and original his followers become more and more eclectic and pedantic they pride themselves on making aristotle and plato agree even in their theory of being where their poles asunder plotinus holds fast to the conception of immateriality with the intuition of true genius those who came after could not grasp this fine idea it slips from their hands as eurydice from the embrace of orpheus the plotinian trinity begins at once to materialize and break up in plotinus philosophy almost takes wing and breaks loose to form a religion by itself he left behind him a compact system of idealism and a lofty spiritual mysticism yet in the background of his thought lay the whole of polytheism with all its hateful magic linked on to his philosophy by the doctrine of the sympathy of nature he himself was a man of serene and fearless intelligence who dwelt content in the realm of ideas a servant of the highest god to whom the demons did homage he could put them out of his mind their hideous forms and noxious arts could do him no harm for him the upward path seems to lie past the gates of hell along a secure and happy track where the spirits of evil have little or no power to molest the pilgrim but he left all the horrors of greco-oriental superstition intact he even strengthened their hold upon the imagination by supplying them with a sort of scientific basis to minds of weaker mould these phantoms of the pit the grotesque and ghastly creations of egyptian and syrian demonology seemed to the nearest and most pressing facts of the spiritual life to them the way appeared to lead almost to its summit right through hell itself and the most precious of all knowledge was that which explained the names of devils and angels how to distinguish one from the other by what amulets or charms to purchase the aid of the ministers of light and outwit the cunning of the foul fiend the most important of the immediate disciples of plotinus was porphyry he was a tyrian though born perhaps in batanea his real name was malchus king which was turned into greek by Aemilius as basileus by longinus as porphyrius purple clad he was born probably in 232 studied at athens under longinus famous as a critic still more famous as the minister of zenobia went to rome in 262 and attached himself to plotinus in 268 he retired to sicily to get rid of a fit of hypochondria which had plunged him into such depression that he even contemplated suicide from sicily he visited carthage where he tells us he had a tame partridge that could all but talk the rest of his life was spent in rome late in life he married marcella a poor widow with many children the union appears to have been purely formal and was probably contracted to enable him to confer benefits without scandal at rome he died late in diocletian's reign at an age somewhat above sixty-eight from longinus whom eunapius calls a living library and walking museum he acquired his learning and his style which is clear elegant and long-winded he stood to plotinus in the same relation as dumont to bentham 
for plotinus by reason of his heavenly mindedness and his twisty enigmatic mode of expression was thought to be laborious and hard but porphyry like a hermaic chain let down to man by his many-sided culture made everything clear and straightforward the most learned of philosophers st augustine calls him and this is the general estimate his introduction to the categories of aristotle still extant formed the basis of all treatises on formal logic through the middle ages to recent times he wrote also on philosophy and the history of philosophy grammar rhetoric mathematics and religion the most famous of his works was that against the christians in fifteen books in which he criticized the scriptures from a rationalistic point of view and maintained that the book of daniel was not written till the time of antiochus epiphanes we possess the sentences an abstract of neoplatonism of which a full analysis will be found in vacherot a life of pythagoras a letter to his wife marcella four books on abstinence from flesh two little mythological treatises on the sticks and the grotto of the nymphs and some considerable fragments of other treatises philosophically he did not differ greatly from his master he appears to have followed Amelius in dividing the divine intelligence into three terms being thought and life and in regarding different classes of entities as proceeding from each what he taught precisely is not clear but he paved the way for the syrian and athenian schools zeller says that he denied the independence of matter and derived all from the one but the passages quoted do not bear this out he believed in transmigration but like iambulicus did not allow that the soul of man could pass into the body of a brute the teaching is nearly the same but the accent is shifted the sense of moral evil is more oppressive the way up is longer and more difficult plotinus held that in its descent the soul puts on an ethereal body in heaven the region of the fixed stars those who have lived a good moral life on earth rise after death as far as the sun but not higher until after successive incarnations they have attained to perfect detachment thus all resurrections till the last were resurrections of a body porphyry went a step further and held that the body was never wholly put off that a corporeal envelope of finer or grosser texture was essential to the permanence of a human soul moreover the soul starts on its downward course from the fixed stars and puts on its garments in the lower world of the planets in this odd way everything was put a step lower and the flesh becomes a permanent burden it became necessary to add another round to the ladder of virtue of this porphyry says there are four degrees the political the purificatory the theoretic and the paradigmatic of these the third and the last correspond to the divine soul and intelligence and lie beyond the horizon of this life it followed from all this that man cannot attain to perfect wisdom in this present life his defects must be made good by the grace of god in the life to come in this deeper sense of sin this view of the body this postponement of the beatific vision we may trace a certain approximation to christian teaching socrates tells us that porphyry had been a christian in his younger days he himself tells us that he had met origen and he certainly knew the bible there were renegades like ammonius saccas but it is generally thought doubtful that porphyry was one his acquaintance with the scriptures proves little none know them so well as those who read to confute them he was a man of sombre melancholy mood and he was a fanatic the austerest puritan would stand aghast at the severity of porphyry's morality his treatise on abstinence is directed not to men of the world they are past praying for but to philosophers some of his fellow disciples castricius firmus in particular 
had returned after the death of Plotinus to a laxer mode of life, and allowed themselves to eat meat. Porphyry girds up his loins to deal faithfully with them. All pleasure is abominable. Horse-racing, the theatre, dancing, marriage, and mutton-chops are equally accursed. Those who indulge in these things are the servants of devils, not of God. But what was the reason for his horror of flesh-food? Not transmigration. He did not regard it as cannibalism. This ground failed him. But he could allege a most physical reason which had been imparted to him by an Egyptian priest. The soul of the murdered lingers near the corpse from which it has been unjustly severed and seeks to regain possession of it this we know from the arts of the necromancer from tales of ghosts and from the fact that the gift of augury may be acquired by eating the heart of a crow a hawk or a mole hence it is clear that the soul of the murdered sheep will enter into him who unlawfully assimilates its mutton here we seem to trace the influence of the clementine homilies or some writing of the same school the most singular thing about him is that he was a man of most sceptical mind and saw the difficulties of polytheism quite as clearly as those of christianity his letter to anebos brings out all the contradictions absurdities immoralities of paganism with the keenest and cruelest candour yet he definitely cast in his lot with the untenable side his sentiments are admirable he was a deeply religious man of high pure and tender if exaggerated morality a long list of fine sayings may be extracted from his writings god asks not sacrifice nor long prayers but a pious life he looks not on the lips but on the life true religion is to know god and to imitate him the true temple is the soul of the wise the wise man is the true priest one ought to offer sacrifice with a clean heart not with costly gifts he quotes the famous epidaurian inscription he that would enter the fragrant shrine must be holy and holiness is to think holy thoughts of the angels to whom he gave a place in his hierarchy he taught that they should be imitated rather than invoked he was far from orthodox in his general principles the established cults were in his view all wrong what the ordinary man seeks by oracles prayers sacrifices is nothing but the goods of the flesh health wealth or the gratification of lust over these things the devils have power those who seek such blessings may worship the devils and use the magic to which they respond the sage has renounced all pleasure and gives himself up to the contemplation of the ideal god then surely he is safe not at all the demons bar his way to god hence apollo once told the prophet that before his prayers could be heard he must pay ransom to the evil one they crowd even the temples hence the egyptians and phoenicians before they begin their worship break symbolic fetters sacrifice certain animals and beat the air with branches of trees to expel the wicked spirits otherwise the god cannot appear they have power by magic even over the elect sosipatra a platonist saint was bewitched by a love filter administered to her by philometor the vile lust could not be driven out till maximus summoned a more potent demon to her aid lastly they have wonderful powers of deceit bad spirits can change their shape and appear as angels thus they have misled individuals states and even philosophers porphyry is the most devout believer in hecate and her hell dogs in jinns hobgoblins spectres amulets spells and can give most philosophical reasons for the most ridiculous superstitions everything that the christian alleged against polytheism he admits in the coolest way 
it was true that the greek sacrificed to devils not to god it was true that the demons were corporeal mortal mostly maleficent it was true that they were deceivers and that philosophy was no safeguard it was true that they demanded and received human sacrifice he tells us that human blood was regularly poured upon the altars in his time in arcadia and at carthage and that even at rome jupiter latiaris was annually sprinkled with the blood of a gladiator what are we to say of this man who found the new testament incredible and took the arabian nights as gospel there is probably no one like him in the whole history of literature all the neoplatonists were two men but no man that ever lived was at once so sane and so insane as porphyry he shows us the extraordinary violence of the recoil against christianity these men hated the church and would believe anything rather than what it taught them yet what they hated was obviously neither its moral austerity nor its metaphysics there remains only the doctrine of a suffering christ and all that this involves the meekness the toleration of ignorance the discipline of service see de civitate dei ten twenty four twenty eight st augustine makes two observations that are worthy of notice the hellenism for which porphyry fought was not hellenism at all it was as novel as christianity thou didst learn these things says the saint not from plato but from thy chaldean masters again the curious arts of the chaldeans were all against the law and porphyry himself knew this human sacrifices and all noxious magic rites were capital crimes those found guilty of them were to be crucified or thrown to the beasts even the possession of magical books was fatal libros magicae artis apud senem habere licet et penes quoscumque reperti sint ambustis his publicae bonisque ademptis honestiores in insulam deportantur humiliores capite puniuntur necenim tantum huius artis professio sedetiam scientia prohibita est emperors themselves dabbled in the black art and the law was not always strictly enforced but nothing could be plainer or more severe than the language of the roman code end of section twenty two section twenty three of neoplatonism by charles big this librivox recording is in the public domain chapter twenty three iamblichus and the men of julian iamblichus was the founder of what is commonly known as the syrian school of neoplatonism it is not specially syrian in a geographical sense but it is marked by a fresh and stronger inrush of syrian theology with its grosser conceptions its wild and nonsensical trick of playing with numbers and its craving for the baser forms of the supernatural so far as it has any affinity with greek thought it may be called a pythagoreanism run mad but its true relations are to be sought rather in the lower forms of gnosticism during the predominance of this school platonism becomes a mere adjunct a mere excuse for theosophy iamblichus belonged to a wealthy family of calchas in Sula, syria he was a pupil of anatolius and afterwards of porphyry later he lectured in his native town the dates of his birth and death are not accurately known he was alive in the reign of constantine but did not survive that emperor his death may be placed about three thirty like the schoolmen the great neoplatonist doctors had their special names of honour that of iamblichus is the divine julian calls him the famous hero and in the spurious letters of julian he is spoken of as the precious treasure of all greeks the saviour of hellenism 
the benefactor of the whole world this wonder and adoration for hero means little less than god he owed not to his intellectual ability but to his fame for miracles from this time forth knowledge was regarded as of little value except in so far as it issued in supernatural powers when the gulf was opening beneath its feet miracles were the last arbitrament to which paganism appealed why oh why said his disciples to him on one occasion dost thou grudge us the more perfect wisdom they had been told that when iamblichus said his prayers he was lifted to a height of ten cubits from the ground this more perfect wisdom far more precious than dull mathematics or hazy ideas came from the brahmins to apollonius from him to iamblichus and from him to our modern mediums levitation is one of its favorite manifestations iamblichus modestly disclaimed the grace but his biographer eunapius clearly means us to believe at gadara were two basins of warm water known as eros and anteros love and love for love iamblichus dipped his fingers in the pools whispered some magic words and straightway two charming little cupids were seen kissing and embracing each other as they played over the surface an egyptian called up apollo by his spells a stern and savage figure appeared it is the soul said iamblichus of a gladiator not the god iamblichus renounced as futile the great task of the later greek philosophy how god created the world we cannot know it is enough to believe that he is the cause of all and that to him nothing is impossible but if in this he cherished a wholesome scepticism in another he threw open the floodgates wide pythagoras he says rightly taught that we are not to disbelieve anything miraculous about the gods or the divine dogmas the gods can do all things and we are not to measure them by the limited power and intelligence that they have given to mankind protrepticus twenty one hence we require a science that will teach us to disbelieve nothing about the gods be not faithless is the same as saying come and learn what will abolish thy unbelief it is possible to recognize here a certain approximation to the language and even the ideas of the church the object of iamblichus is not being or thought but god and knowledge is merely a preparation for worship god is miracle he is more than we are and what he does we cannot understand because we are not gods and cannot do it ourselves we know him partly from ourselves so far as our nature reflects his partly from history and revelation these two kinds of knowledge inasmuch as both flow from the same source and have a common meeting place will harmonize with and supplement each other but faith in the larger personality from which both proceed will be above either unfortunately history and revelation as iamblichus knew them were composed of all the fables of all the mythologies his philosophy was not so much platonism as pythagoreanism which explains everything by sacred numbers and the science which was secure disbelief was magic what plato and plotinus were concerned for was the inner essence of paganism the joyous intellectual thoroughly human life of hellenism the religion of poets artists legislators thinkers of the natural man at his best to this plotinus gave almost perfect expression but life is not all intellectual and joyous and his work fell to ruins like a house built upon the sand what iamblichus had next his heart was hellenism as a practical system those sweepings of idolatry which plato cast aside as vile falsehoods against the highest became to him necessaries of life because in them too there was a truth such as they were in their own villainous shapes they conveyed all that the greek knew of in the way of personal religious experience hence they could not be given up nor could they be shoved into the background 
such a change in the attitude towards religion was necessarily attended by a change equally great in the philosophic basis it is difficult to grasp or expound the teaching of iamblichus partly because of its inherent confusion partly because it has to be pieced together out of quotations made by other writers in its main features it was reproduced and brought into order by the keener intelligence of proclus and as the rudiments of proclus are extant and easily accessible in dido's edition we may defer what must be said on the subject till we come to the school of athens for the present it will suffice to state that iamblichus puts philosophy entirely on one side and sets the gods in place of the ideas the philosophy is allowed to remain as a mental exercise but all life thought and being are made to flow through the gods that is through zeus apollo and the rest somehow the ideas create the gods but it is with the gods alone that we are really concerned now as the gods were innumerable iamblichus wanted also innumerable ideas to account for them and this he accomplished by splitting up the indivisible intelligence of plotinus into three thinking thought and the thinker became three separate beings each of these begets another triad and so ad infinitum and by the side of the triads there is a hebdomad thus he expanded the series of the overworldly gods the inworldly gods comprised gods proper angels demons and heroes the twelve olympian gods give birth to thirty-six other orders these to seventy-two others these again to three hundred and sixty others besides these we have twenty-one world rulers and forty-two orders of nature gods it is obvious what he is doing he is dealing with the seven planets the twelve signs of the zodiac the three hundred and sixty-five days of the year not with laws of thought except in so far as the triplet may have some basis in psychology in his morality he hardens the pessimistic tendency of porphyry the outlook under constantine was hopeless persecution roused the christian to ardor and fired all his thoughts with the belief in the nearness of the end and the coming of his lord in triumph but it took all heart out of the pagan amid the dismal apprehensions of the time the soul sinks further and further away from god iamblichus adds yet another round to the ladder of virtue above the four degrees of porphyry he sets a fifth the theurgic hieratic or priestly virtues the soul is never without a body it is definitely separated from the divine intelligence the sense powers are part of it and it can never rise above the angels here on earth it dwells among foes and in its utter helplessness it must look for salvation not to the divine goodness or love but to the constant interposition of divine power and this power must be invoked in god's own way an inscrutable way by the use of those sacramental means which he has ordained in other words by magic here comes in by way of commentary the de mysterius which though not written by iamblichus himself represents the inner life of his school it presents itself as a reply to porphyry's skeptical letter to anebos and professes to be the work of abamon the master of anebos it uses all the fine old language about the gods this the reader will kindly take for granted but to what does it all amount what was it that julian really wanted to set up again in place of christianity it was not knowledge but revelation all greek wisdom is derived from the east plato and pythagoras were mere interpreters imperfect interpreters of lessons learned in egyptian temples all religion comes from osiris or bel all philosophy from hermes trismegistus the author complains of the restless neologism of the greeks and appeals from the babble of the schools to the faith once delivered in thebes and nineveh the old proverb know thyself the watchword of the socratic schools means no longer know thy divine nature but know thy weakness and need of help 
and help can be vouchsafed only by means of apparitions but apparitions were dangerous things scarcely any man can distinguish the god that helps from the demon that destroys it is therefore of vital importance to learn the rudiments of this saving law as handed down not by irresponsible individuals but by learned and holy priests a god always wears the same shape and is always friendly demons are changeable sometimes big sometimes little sometimes hideous yet lovely when they choose angels are neither so changeable as demons nor so constant as gods but are sweeter and less awful than archangels of archons those who rule the elements are more comely than the ugly sprites who preside over shapeless matter before the appearance of a demon there is seen a lurid smoky flame good spirits are heralded by variously colored glows of light some demons are attended by fierce beasts demons do harm or minister to sensual gratification angels give virtue and wisdom archangels perseverance spiritual strength and the power of vision the gods alone impart love and joy their coming may be invited though not compelled by use of the prescribed means magic songs and potions sacred characters written perhaps with phosphorus on a wall by a glass of water by a table a staff certain kinds of wood stone or grain lastly by prayer and what was the prayer sometimes it was a threat if the god lingered the priest might menace him with consequences if thou dost not what i ask i will unseal the stars reveal the secrets of isis and give up the limbs of osiris to typhon but in all cases the prayer was not an outpouring of soul to the father but the utterance of certain formulas the words were a mere jargon which had no reference to anything in particular which had indeed no sense at all yet brought an answer god only knew why when edesius was in perplexity he had recourse to that prayer in which he had most confidence which particular abracadabra this was eunapius does not inform us but we have samples of these amazing liturgies they consist mainly of strings of barbaric names honest greek was no good one ran miu threu mor for Teux, za, zon, te, lu, ge, ze. The famous Ephesian letters were Aski, Kataski, Aix or Lix, Tetrax, Damnomenius, Aesion. Sabaot, Adonai, Cherubim, Seraphim, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob furnished another equally potent and more intelligible invocation. it is not easy to guess whether such ill-sounding vocables as mu and through are real names of demons or mere hocus-pocus but these neoplatonist prayers shed some light on what our lord meant when he warned his disciples against vain repetitions it will be observed that though the hellenists borrowed from the old testament no one appears to have followed the example of the seven sons of sceva they spared the crucified one this insult the christian old woman says st augustine is wiser than these philosophers such was the faith of the men by whom julian was led captive and on whose advice he relied wholly in religious and largely in political affairs they are hardly to be called men so utterly is the element of virility absent from their eastern composition it is curious to note that in the fourth century the rhetor and the philosopher seemed to have exchanged characters in the second century the rhetor was the woman in the fourth he is the man libanius who was a literateur and orator and sat loose to philosophy has more common sense force and intelligence than any other among the heroes of eunapius indeed if we compare the men of the time athanasius with iamblichus basil and the two gregories with edesius chrysantius maximus 
it is easy to see how hopeless was the voyage on which julian embarked maximus deserves special notice he was the chief agent in the perversion of julian and he owed his success to magic of the most dubious kind his brethren confined themselves mainly to telepathy and thought reading but he could do things which the more sober regarded askance as trenching upon the domain of Gitia or the black art eusebius gave julian an ambiguous warning against him perhaps only intended to whet the prince's curiosity chrysantius he said was the real teacher maximus had commerce with hylic powers who drive men to madness julian of course pressed for an explanation and was then told how by burning a few grains of frankincense and repeating a hymn maximus had made the statue of hecate first smile then laugh outright when we were alarmed at the sight continued the ingenuous narrator he cried do not be frightened in a moment the torches in the hands of the goddess will light up and quicker than the word there they were all aflame but i think nothing of these things no more should you the great thing is purification by the word julian replied farewell and stick to your books your books of magic you have shown me the man i wanted he kissed chrysanthius and flew off to ephesus where maximus was when julian became emperor he sent for chrysanthius and maximus chrysanthius refused the invitation but maximus hastened to court on the wings of desire undeterred by the evil omens that met him on the road his conduct was marked by pride corruption and greed he retained his influence throughout the reign of jovian but under valentinian and valens fell into disgrace was imprisoned and treated with such severity that he resolved upon suicide his wife brought him poison drank first to give him courage and fell dead at his feet but at this supreme moment his heart failed him and he would not drink he was released from prison tried to get a living as a sophist and failed and finally made his way back to constantinople where his reputation as a wizard once more brought him money and success but towards the end of the reign of valens he suffered himself to overstep the narrow line that parted theurgy from high treason at a seance held in a private house the fatal question was propounded who should be the next emperor a metal bowl bearing within its rim the letters of the alphabet was placed upon a table over it leaned the hierophant holding between his fingers a ring suspended from a carpathian thread the ring vibrated within the bowl and touched one letter after another it spelled out t-h-e-o and stopped the thing leaked out it was undoubtedly a case of inquiring against the life of the emperor and all concerned in it were put to death maximus had not been present but he had heard and not reported the secret and he perished with the others he deserves as we said special notice for two reasons it is often urged that these men were not idolaters they said that they were not indeed no human being ever allowed that he was but they one and all believed that the god or the demon dwelt in the image and animated it the statue of hecate could laugh if it was rightly approached but there is a still graver question that meets us here was maximus honest or was he a rogue the same doubt attaches to eusebius and indeed to the whole tribe that hung about julian when edesius displayed an oracle printed on his hand was not this some kind of trickery at any rate the syrian school has no living interest either religious or scientific they were not merely dissenters but political dissenters the same worldly ambitions that degraded the church during the bitter arian controversy acted upon the pagans with ten times greater virulence intelligence and sanctity fly out of the window when party strife comes in at the door the school of athens had accepted its defeat renounced the world and settled down to peaceful industry 
philosophy was never persecuted except by julian for the decrees by which the apostate in effect drove the christians out of public schools were blows at learning heathenism and magic were treated harshly enough though in the case of the latter nothing was really done that went beyond the positive enactments of the old roman law shortly before his death constantine prohibited all sacrifices and constantius went further still ordering all heathen worship to cease and all temples to be closed under penalty of death and confiscation these decrees however were not enforced with absolute uniformity the ancient cult was still tolerated at rome at alexandria and to some extent at athens and probably elsewhere in the year 368 five years after julian's death the word paganism first occurs in a law of valentinian by this time the towns were mainly christian and the old creed was driven back into the pagi or country districts about the same time gratian refused to wear the ornaments belonging to the pontifex maximus but still retained the title he was the last emperor that stamped it on his coins he it was who removed from the senate house in rome the statue and altar of victory the reign of theodosius is marked by two notable events in 391 the famous serapeum at alexandria was raised and the sacred places of hellenism delivered over to the black-robed monks men in shape says eunapius but their life is that of swine in 394 the senate of rome the very stronghold of idolatry was formally converted and cast the skin of the old serpent these events were attended by new and more stringent decrees in 415 hypatia was murdered at alexandria and in 423 theodosius the younger informs the world in an edict that paganism is extinct that this was not strictly accurate is evident from the facts that proclus made no disguise of his religious practices that st augustine and erosius wrote against those who regarded the invasion of the barbarians as a judgment on the national apostasy and that justinian was compelled to tolerate damascius and his friends from the time of constantius to that of theodosius the pagans appear to have enjoyed a precarious toleration enforced by the external troubles of the empire but even under the sharpest edicts few if any appear to have lost their lives for their religious opinions known adherents of the old gods held high positions in the state there was no restriction on their use of the pen and they retained a practical monopoly of the schools magic was a very different thing and unfortunately it was the siamese twin of heathenism it was as we have seen condemned under penalty of death by the roman law which entirely ignored the nice distinction between gitia and theurgy the black and the white arts themis sometimes slumbered there were many magical books in ephesus in st paul's time but the penalties might be enforced our lord was called a gaze and it is probable that many christians were put to death on this charge when a christian mounted the throne the old jewish law against witchcraft came in to sharpen the severity of roman jurisprudence eunapius tells us that under constantine edesius was obliged to dissemble his miraculous powers under constantius there was a bitter prosecution which issued in the imprisonment and torture of a number of persons though no one appears to have actually lost his life ammianus complains that no one could wear an amulet round his neck to keep off the ague or walk through a cemetery by night without jeopardizing his life as a magician or necromancer no sensible man he adds would deny that witchcraft deserved punishment but severe penalties ought not to be enforced except in the case of offences against the life of the sovereign this in fact had been the usual practice we have seen what was the fate of maximus under valens but the danger was not confined to heathen philosophers in 374 st john chrysostom nearly lost his life through fishing a book of magic out of the orontes 
finally in 394 theodosius forbade magic of all kinds under pain of maestas etiam si nihil contra salutum principum aut de salute quaesierit yet even this did not prevent proclus from enjoying a harmless reputation as a medicine man and cabalistic books continued to find purchasers and students upon the whole paganism was not cruelly treated and died almost a natural death there was never any inquisition the adherents of jupiter were never called upon to blaspheme their god the edicts did not extend beyond the prohibition of public observances and were little more than bruta fulmina deplorable excesses like the assassination of hypatia were rare and were the work of popular fanaticism as for magic it suffered under the old heathen statutes and if christians ought not to have believed in witchcraft at any rate they could find ample justification for their conduct in the writings of the enlightened porphyry End of section 23section 24 of neoplatonism by charles big this librivox recording is in the public domain chapter 24 the school of athens proclus was born in constantinople on february 8 412 if the calculation from his horoscope is correct but possibly in 410 in the reign of theodosius ii three years before the murder of hypatia and 21 years after the demolition of the serapeum his father patricius and mother marcella were lycians and not long after his birth returned to xanthus in that country like many of the famous platonic teachers he was wealthy and he possessed what in this flesh-hating but aesthetic school was regarded as one of the chief qualifications of a teacher striking personal beauty nor was he devoid of a pardonable vanity marinus had seen numerous portraits of him while yet but a boy he was sent to alexandria where he studied under leonas a rhetorician and orion a grammarian and priest he learned latin also with a view to the law his father's profession but while on a brief visit to constantinople the goddess of the city appeared to him in a dream and called him to philosophy on his return to alexandria he read aristotle with the peripatetic olympiodorus and mathematics with heron a religious man hence he passed at the age of nineteen to athens where the gods were still worshipped and the most famous teachers of the day were to be found two incidents were related in after times as ominous of his future eminence when he landed from his ship he sat down for a moment's rest in the shrine of socrates not knowing where he was and the first water he drank on attic soil was drawn from the sacred well shortly after his arrival he went up to the acropolis it was late in the day and the porter who was just barring the gates greeted him with the words unless you had come i should have shut up he arrived in athens just in time to hear plutarch who died two years afterwards under syrianus he read seven years sharpening his intelligence with the study of aristotle and plato and drugging it with the oracles the orphic verses and chaldean books but the teacher who left the deepest mark upon his character was asclepigenea the daughter of plutarch from whom he acquired the whole art and practice of theurgy on the death of syrianus about 438 he became head of the school diadochus or successor and about the same time at the age of twenty-eight he published his commentary on the timaeus which he himself regarded as his masterpiece at athens he remained till his death though once he was obliged to fly probably on account of his religious opinions and remained for some time in shelter in his lycian home he is described as a man of singular amiability and attractiveness he remained unmarried 
but took the liveliest interest in the welfare of his friends, their wives and children. His friendship with Archiades was thought worthy of comparison with that of Damon and Phintius. Though a most laborious student, he took an active part in municipal affairs. He was a severe and diligent teacher, not sparing of rebuke, flashing out at times into anger, yet placable, watching the morals and progress of his pupils with a friendly but exacting eye. In his personal habits he was ascetic to an extreme degree, yet he would taste meat, if pressed to do so at a banquet, for courtesy's sake. Every day, Marinus tells us, he delivered five lectures or more, and wrote seven hundred lines. The afternoons were generally spent in conversing on philosophic subjects as he took his exercise, and in the evenings he held a sort of conversazione. With all these occupations he managed to combine an unremitting round of religious observances. Three times a day, at dawn, at midday, and at evening, he worshipped the sun. The great part of every night was spent in singing hymns, sacrifice, and prayers, especially for sick friends. Every month he went down to the sea to perform his lustrations. He observed all the feasts and fasts of the Egyptian calendar, and many others, and once every year he held a solemn office for the repose of the dead. For such a life at that time no small courage was wanted, but Proclus did not lack resolution. When he paid his freshman's call upon Syrianus, it was the evening of the new moon, and the old professor dismissed him rather curtly, being anxious to get to his devotions as soon as possible, and not knowing what manner of man he had to deal with. But happening to cast a glance through the window, he saw Proclus take off his shoes and do obeisance to the crescent moon in the open street. In later times the house of Proclus, apparently it was the official residence of the Diadochus or Rector, adjoined the temple of Asclepius, and lay just under the Acropolis. This was convenient, as he could pass to and from his devotions secure from prying and hostile eyes. By study, maceration of the flesh, and careful observance of the rules of Asclepigenea, Proclus attained through the political and purificatory to the theurgic virtues. This is the point of view from which Marinus, his pupil and successor, envisages his life. He became an eye-witness. Rufinus saw a halo of light round his head as he lectured. The gods honoured him with constant apparitions, especially in dreams. He was assured that he belonged to the Hermaic chain, the Platonic apostolical succession, and that the soul of Nicomachus, the Pythagorean, inhabited his body. When the statue of Pallas was removed from the Parthenon, the goddess appeared to him and declared her intention of taking up her abode under his roof. Macaon, Pan, Hecate, the mother of the gods, were constant visitants, and Asclepius came to heal him of the gout. His vision is no longer transcommunion with the absolute, but actual personal converse with bodily gods, and his system aims at showing that these bodily gods were the absolute, and not, as Plotinus thought, inferior created beings. He wrought miracles also, which Marinus tells us were beyond number. He could summon rain in time of drought, and also prevent earthquakes, though how this latter power was ascertained is hard to see. By prayer he restored to full health the daughter of Archiades, who lay at the point of death. Before the exercise of his supernatural gifts, he made use of all the usual magic paraphernalia, Chaldean lustrations, the Chaldean strophalos, a sort of teetotum, the wry neck, familiar to readers of Pindar and Theocritus, and the tripod. His death was portended by an eclipse of the sun, which caused an extraordinary darkness, during which the stars were seen at noonday. He expired on April 17, 485, and was buried in the same tomb with Syrianus, in the eastern suburb of Athens, under Mount Lycabetus. 
Proclus represents the expiring struggle of polytheism. Plotinus found paganism a shelter under the wings of his Platonism, but treated it as the religion of the vulgar. There is a certain tolerant scorn in his attitude, as in that of the Vedanta towards the Sanskrit mythology. This, however, was fatal. For as Porphyry showed only too clearly, the moment the gods were seated below the highest, they became devils. Their figures must be carried back without a moment's delay into the Holy of Holies, or the game was lost. It would never do to confess in the face of the church that Hellas had two religions. This is what Proclus saw, and this is the danger he set himself to avert. This religious object he achieved by the destruction of Neoplatonism. The system of Plotinus is severely scientific. It is worked out with a single purpose on true idealist lines, and issues in an unity as complete as is attainable by the mind of man. Polytheism indeed is there, but it is smuggled in, if the expression may be used, and might be completely dropped without affecting the general result. The many gods are but an expression for the divine intelligence which permeates all and holds all in sympathy. The object to which Plotinus himself aspires is the one, the good, the fountain of the one chain of life and reason, which reaches through all that is. Proclus breaks up this unity at every joint in its stem. The distinctive feature of his method is its scholasticism. His rudiments of theology is modelled on Euclid, and proceeds, like the ethics of Spinoza, in deductive catenation from one proposition to another. The distinctive feature of his scholasticism again is a tendency to divide everything into threes. For this a sort of justification may be found in what Vacherot calls the law of the ternary. Every product being complex involves three principles, finite, infinite and compositum, or has three moments, it remains in its cause, goes forth from its cause, and returns to its cause. One can attach a meaning to this, but Proclus brings in his triads in most arbitrary fashion, and the result is a confusion which neither the learning of Zeller nor the lucidity of Vacherot can render intelligible. Three leading points may be signalized. 1. Proclus denies expressly the independence of matter. All comes from the one. Matter in the later Platonists is so vanishing a quantity that its total disappearance makes little or no difference, except in regard to the origin of evil. When Proclus says the body is divine, he hardly contradicts Plotinus, for even according to that philosopher the body is form, and form is divine. Nevertheless, the change left Proclus without any means whatever of accounting for moral evil. All that he says of bad men is that they are not receptive, they go out of the way of the divine light. 2. The three hypostases of the Platonic Trinity are incommunicable. This is the most exasperating point in the systems of Iamblichus and Proclus, for it sounds like nonsense, yet there must surely be some rational explanation. It appears to rest entirely upon the arbitrary use of the system of triads. If there is a mind which participates and a mind which is participated in, there must also, Proclus thought, be a mind which is not participated in, which is incommunicable. But the result is that the Plotinian good, intelligence, soul, cease to be fountains of life or causes at all. The whole system of the Enneads becomes a mere cabinet of curiosities, and nothing is left with any vitality except the gods and individual souls. Probably this result is, in fact, the reason. 3. In Plotinus there is one great chain of life. In Proclus there is an infinity of chains. This follows from what has been said. Each god is a cause and head of a separate family. From the incommunicable one spring, one knows not how, a host of henads. 
each has the character of absolute being yet each has distinctive qualities the henads run down in long lines the intelligible are followed by the intellectual these by the overworldly these again by the inworldly from the intelligible springs the family of being from the intellectual that of intelligence from the overworldly that of soul from the inworldly that of nature these principal chains are mainly like brooks falling into one river that which has a body may also have a soul and an intelligence but they subdivide as they go down there are different kinds of intelligences and different kinds of souls dependent on them so that the river is perpetually branching off into other rivers further there are chains in which the intermediate links are wanting there may be soul without intelligence and existence without form yet further the principal chains have to be multiplied by the number of henads for each chain is a family depending on a god and exhibiting throughout the characteristic of that god it includes not only angels heroes demons and human beings but stones plants animals which bear the signature of the deity and have sacramental virtues with respect to him but these divine characteristics are taken from the pagan liturgy so that the simple intelligible divisions of philosophy are split up to suit the endless ramifications of polytheism it is needless to perplex the reader with further details enough has been said to show the principal object that proclus had in view and the means whereby he sought to attain it the fact is that he did not want the philosophy or wanted it only to justify his religion he felt that the supreme entities of the school the one the intelligence the soul are not gods at all they do not feed the spiritual life nor minister to the formation of character hence he labels them incommunicable and puts them on the shelf it is as easy to drop platonism out of proclus as polytheism out of plotinus how much depends here on our estimate of the character and ability of proclus victor cousin no bad judge rates him among the first of ancient thinkers and there can be little doubt that he was a good and religious man but if so how powerful is his testimony to the fact that philosophy even the best and noblest cannot satisfy the instincts of the soul the prejudices of the school were strong enough to force proclus to deny the incarnation but though all the fruits of all the systems were before him he could find none to quench the hunger and thirst after righteousness there is however another lesson proclus abandoned knowledge god is known he said neither by opinion nor by science nor by reasoning nor by intuition but necessarily that is by affinity of nature each god is known to those who belong to his chain and share his character necessarily must mean by emotion or some kind of unreasoning faith for proclus excludes all the operations of pure or mixed reason he is a metaphysician but he uses his metaphysics to destroy metaphysics the ideas are incommunicable or as dr hatch says god does not reveal metaphysics we know neither the finite nor the infinite but the third term the compositum is not this very much the position of kantism yet this view did not save proclus from the most abject superstition and its evil effects have been witnessed more than once in the church it is nothing but a residuum of metaphysics that saves schleiermacher or kant from herding with the anabaptists there remains as proclus might have seen if he had been willing to apply his triads here also a third course if philosophy by itself is barren and faith by itself is unbridled there may be here too a compositum faith may aid reason and reason may establish faith this has always been the position of christian theology 
the succession of the diadochi ran on after the death of proclus for forty-four years through marinus the samaritan isidorus xenodotus about this name there is some doubt hegius and damasius but the most famous member of the expiring school was simplicius whose learned commentaries on aristotle furnish a rich mine of information to the student of greek philosophy the only glimpse we get of the personality of these men is afforded by the life of isidore the work of damascius it is a catalogue of marvels of the most puerile description some of them are natural phenomena which science has since learned to explain tiberius had a donkey which could be made to give off sparks by rubbing his coat the simple beast was thus used to prophesy his master's elevation to the purple but we may regard him with equal truth as the first known ancestor of the electric telegraph Ammonianus had another donkey which was so fond of hearing poetry that it forgot to eat its hay one could read the future by gazing into a glass of water another by means of a crystal sphere another by watching the shapes of the clouds a new art asclepiodotus could read in the dark and eusebius cast out a devil by adjuring the rays of the sun and the god of the hebrews and all the while the practitioners of these arts were being hunted down by the police and often paid for their curiosity with their lives such was the martyrdom appointed for neoplatonism in 528 justinian ordained a new and more stringent persecution in which macedonius asclepiodotus phocus and thomas the quaestor perished in 529 came the final blow the schools of athens were closed and their endowments confiscated by this time the income of the platonic chair had risen by successive legacies from three pieces the rent of the garden in the academe bequeathed to his disciples by plato himself to something more than a thousand what became of the money we are not told doubtless it was not spent on the encouragement of letters one scene remains half tragedy half comedy driven from the temples and lecture halls of athens a little band of seven sages including damascius simplicius eulalius priscian hermias diogenes and isidore wandered across the desert to seek shelter in persia persia was to them a sacred land the home of the zoroastrian mysteries and khosru nushirvan was the friend and patron of greek culture he had caused aristotle and plato to be translated into syriac and accepted from priscian the dedication of a learned treatise there was this amount of foundation for their credulous belief that the republic of plato was realized in the despotic government of persia and that a patriot king reigned over the happiest and most virtuous of nations but they were soon undeceived their repentance adds gibbon was expressed by a precipitate return and they loudly declared that they had rather die on the borders of the empire than enjoy the wealth and favour of the barbarian after all christian greece was less intolerable than the favoured land of ormuzd and of mithra in 533 khosru made his first peace with the romans and stipulated that the seven sages should be exempted from the penal laws which justinian enacted against his pagan subjects the fact is greatly to his honour with this incident we may close our story but life knows no dates which are but as landmarks on the banks of a river the stream flows past them sometimes lost in a swamp sometimes gathering its waters again in a brimming channel the neoplatonist held that nothing perishes and neoplatonism is still alive though broken to pieces like the body of osiris or still more aptly like the image of gold and clay its table wrapping its crystal spheres its levitations its telepathy its materializations are all in full play 
within two miles of the spot where these lines are written in the depths of the english midlands is a theurgist whom damasius would have revered as a saint its mysticism has lived on in the bosom of the christian church its idealism can never die time has pronounced its verdict heathenism is dead and magic is the belief of fools in their effort to save polytheism the ancient sages succeeded only like mesentius in shackling a corpse to the living the union could only infect with disease that which otherwise possessed the seeds of health all the driveling inanities of neoplatonism spring from this fatal cause knowledge of external nature they had almost none it was not given to their time but they dealt with those supremely interesting eternal questions to which science after all supplies no answer the nature and the communion of god and man it is to the mind within us that we must look for their solution so far as reason can hope to find a solution the neoplatonists believed that there is a mind and their analysis of its operations primitive and in some respects fantastic as it may be differs mainly in its dualism from that which is still largely held they were the first to attain to a clear and consistent view of what is meant by spiritual existence of the nature of being regarded as devoid of extension and divisibility by this great advance they became the founders of theology of metaphysics of psychology and of mental science in general their leading ideas are the common stock of medieval schoolmen and of modern thinkers down to hegel and carlyle but what judgment are we to pass on their practical results they taught if we look at their doctrines and forget their practice that there is one god the fountain of life thought and beauty whose highest name is the good he is above nature yet in nature containing not contained by his word all things are and have a meaning in him rest and from him flow all existence order perfection happiness he is law and to him belongs eternity they taught that nature though changing as a wisp of vapor is in type as eternal as the thought of god which it reflects they taught that man is individually eternal that in this world he is an exile from home yet that god is in him and ever draws him upwards by the golden cord of reason they taught that the upward path lies through duty and thoughtfulness to conscious communion with the divine that this is the fullness of being and happiness which the world does not give and cannot take away they taught that sin is alienation from god and brings its own punishment the sensual man is wolfish and misery dogs his steps in this life and in the life to come even their crowning doctrine of the ineffable one is not so irrational or so agnostic as it seems two of the divine hypostases could be known and they included not only the goodness wisdom and justice but even the eternity of god it was but the personality itself the ultimate root of the divine being that the neoplatonists held to be withdrawn from rational cognizance even this might be felt as we feel the personality of one another jules simon discerned in the neoplatonist trinity a sincere attempt to reconcile the results of pure speculation with those of the religious experience the supreme god of plotinus is neither the eleatic one a mere abstract number who is devoid of all power of creation nor on the other hand the anthropomorphic deity in any one of the forms under which he has been misconceived he is the head of all things in whom the conflicting demands of reason and conscience science and faith strive to find their satisfaction the synthesis of all the antitheses how like is all this to christianity yet the two systems are so unlike that no truce between them was possible and after a struggle of little more than two hundred years the galilean conquered 
what were the causes of this bitter hostility and by what means did god thus pull down the high thoughts of the sons of plato st augustine has given us the answer in the seventh book of his confessions he was led through platonism to the gospel and well he knew of what he writes common sense led him to reject astrology and all the magical futilities that follow in its train the cause of evil was a deeper and far more terrible problem and long did he wrestle with it before he was led to see that moral evil the real difficulty springs not from matter but from will that it is not a disease but a rebellion the last step was the incarnation he read in the books of the platonists that the word was god and that by him all things were made but that the word became flesh and dwelt among us this he did not read there that evil is not ignorance but the cause of ignorance the sullen resistance of the worse to the better that god came down emptied himself took upon him the form of a servant to heal this strife these were the points according to the philosopher whether ancient or modern god cannot come down the universal cannot embody itself in the particular not that the god of the platonist was exactly loveless he might be said to love with an unchanging love but being unchanging he could only draw all things unto himself he could not go forth upon the mountains to seek the lost sheep but observe the love which st augustine discovered was suffering love precisely in the suffering lies its difference from platonic love thus the incarnation can be understood only through the crucifixion the distinctive emblem of christianity is the cross there are modern thinkers who find the whole essence of the gospel in plato and plotinus there is even an influential school of theology which inclines in the same direction which stumbles over the notion of the just suffering for the unjust and regards the word vicarious with a certain dread what we call sanctification the mode by which the forgiven sinner becomes one spirit with the lord is if we may take it by itself largely common to all idealism the idea of sonship belongs to all the later greek schools even to stoicism but how is the sinner forgiven is there such a thing as forgiveness how is the penal ignorance enlightened and the penal hardness softened and the upward way made possible the church replied through the sufferings of christ through the sacrifice of his death as the willfulness of the child is broken by the tears of his mother this was what the platonist denied and denies what are known as ethical theories of the atonement are widely diffused in these vague and good-natured days but they ignore the commonest fact of life the law of vicarious suffering they render the gospel in the terms of plato and they may be held and actually are held by those who deny the incarnation altogether end of section 24section 25 of neoplatonism by charles big this librivox recording is in the public domain chapter 25 later influence of platonism on the church originism that is to say the theodicy of origin was little more than an incident in the history of the church origin's theory of creation vanished almost immediately his tenet of catharsis or purification was absorbed by the growing belief in purgatory but it was held that after death no repentance no change of will was possible universalism though condemned reappeared from time to time but was generally based as we shall see on a different foundation the learning of the great alexandrine doctor is buried under the mountain of modern acquirements like typhaeus under in 
but he left to the christian world even though his heirs do not always know from whom the legacy is derived his fearless spirit his allegorism that is to say the love of the spirit beneath the letter his devotion to learning and his profound and cultivated belief in essential dogma like augustus he found his city of brick and he left it of marble it is needless to dwell in detail on the influence of platonism or neoplatonism upon the mainstream of theology after origin even before nicaea that influence was almost wholly limited to the idea of timeless existence it taught the church that materialism is not consistent with true religion nor with the right understanding of scripture but the interest in the full humanity of our lord was much more than sufficient to save the church as a whole from the opposite danger of identifying the god of conscience with the abstractions of the schools idealism pointed out the direction in which the meeting point of religion and science must lie no more than this can be accomplished until science can rise from results to the first cause as yet this has not been done but so long as science lags behind we might as well attempt to reconcile euclid with shakespeare as faith with biology science must complete herself before she can enter upon the question when she has discovered her god we shall be in a position to judge whether her laws are akin or not akin to those of conscience enlightened by revelation at present we can only insist that at every turn science presupposes mind which has so far eluded her grasp that the thing is a thought though how the thought came to be a thing we do not know arianism like other anti-nicene heresies was aristotelic hence it insisted upon the solitary unity of the first cause and applied to every other form of being the aristotelic distinction of potentiality and actuality of matter and form it followed that there could not be two uncreated that begotten meant the same thing as created and that neither sun nor spirit could be everlasting all these positions plotinus would have denied begetting indeed is the very word that he employs to denote the relation of his timeless hypostases athanasius also denied them but not for the same reasons as plotinus the ground of his faith is expressed in one sentence of the de incarnatione the word alone was able to recreate all and sufficient to suffer for all and to intercede for all with the father for the mediator of forgiveness for the example of obedience for the representative and high priest he like saint anselm wanted a saviour who was truly a divine person not merely the intelligence of god not the mere unfolding of the monad into consciousness athanasius taught the existence of three persons in one deity the three hypostases of the neoplatonist really formed but one and that an incomplete because purely intellectual person it was by no means hellenism that saved the church at nicaea from this time philosophy becomes a mere name for christian culture theology went its own way and worked out its own destiny platonism of the plotinian or earlier stamp was still indeed called in to illustrate the doctrine of the trinity or of divine providence or to support by a limited application of its arguments the deathlessness of the soul in this sense its traces are to be found in many of the greek fathers down to the eighth century when darkness settled on the eastern church in the lumina cappadociae in eusebius cyril theodoret nemesius aeneas of gaza in the west the idealist caste of thought found its noblest and most enduring expression in the theology of st augustine this great divine knew the works of the greek philosophers only in latin translations and analyses but his thought ran parallel to theirs to him as to the platonist evil is a defect and the reconciliation between god and man is brought about not by effort but by grace that is by love 
the emphatic proclamation of the power of love is st augustine's crowning merit but the brightest light casts the darkest shadow love is given not claimed or deserved the cry of the beloved is always what didst thou see in me non sum tanti jesu quanti amor tuus estimat only by logical inconsistency can the exaltation of love be saved from determinism and only by pantheism from the exaggeration of moral evil augustine was logical and no pantheist he drew a dark picture of fallen nature but against a real sin he set a real love like all the great doctors he builds his theology on conscience not on the abstract reason the love that he preaches is the love of jesus not of the absolute and this is indeed the main reason of his austerity for jesus is the most austere of masters and john is the most austere of evangelists from augustine platonism if so it may be called runs on through luther casting off in its course more and more of those salutary restraining influences that kept augustinianism within the bounds of the catholic church we have said that after nicaea platonism became little more than an accomplishment there is however one remarkable exception to this statement it is synesius of cyrene bishop of ptolemaeus in the libyan pentapolis readers of kingsley know him well and his biography has been written for this series by miss gardner he was a burly jolly kindly cultivated man the very ideal of a squire parson famous for his genealogy which ran back for seventeen hundred years and began with the god heracles the longest pedigree ever known gibbon calls it for his friendship with hypatia who was by the way at least a middle-aged woman for his love of horses and dogs and his hatred of oppression an educated tory gentleman we may style him who was honourably distinguished by his bold and statesmanlike championship of the poor in an age of great disorder and calamity but he was also an exceedingly broad churchman when theophilus of alexandria proposed to consecrate him bishop synesius felt two great difficulties his love for his wife and his theological opinions let us hear what he has to say on these points god and the law and the sacred hand of theophilus gave me a wife i do therefore give all men to know and do solemnly protest that i will neither be separated from her nor will i live with her secretly as a paramour but i shall will and pray that many good children may be born to us there is one other thing that theophilus need not be told because he knows it already it is the chief point of all it is difficult indeed impossible that those beliefs which the demonstrations of science have implanted in the soul should be shaken in many respects philosophy contradicts received dogmas i shall never believe that the soul is born after the body i shall not say that the world and its parts are destined to perish together the much preached of resurrection i look upon as a holy mystery and i am far from agreeing with the opinion of the many the philosophic intelligence in short while it beholds the truth admits the necessity of lying light corresponds to truth but the eye is dull of vision it cannot without injury gaze on the infinite light as twilight is more comfortable for the eye so i hold is falsehood for the common run of people the truth can only be harmful for those who are unable to gaze on the reality if the laws of the priesthood permit me to hold this position then i can accept consecration keeping my philosophy to myself at home and preaching fables out of doors gibbon chuckles over synesius with great delight and thinks the love of a wife and the love of philosophy equally amusing in a prelate most readers will think that his manly conjugal fidelity is a fine trait and that it would have been better for the church if there had been more bishops like him in this 
but his orthodoxy leaves much to be desired the date of the soul's creation was an open question and he does not say exactly what he believed about the day of judgment and the resurrection but he puts philosophy above the creed and seems to regard all dogmas as lies in the platonic sense that is to say as allegories or to use carlyle's expression clothes there is in fact very little in any of his works that might not have been written by a heathen neoplatonist and neither miss gardner nor vacherot can quite decide whether he was a christian at all but he was a good man and a good bishop and he rode straight he did not hold his tongue that he might hold preferment what he sought in the episcopacy was not lucre but the opportunity of great and perilous work whether this is a sufficient excuse may be doubted but there can be no doubt as to the immorality of theophilus who persecuted chrysostom and consecrated synesius we have been speaking of the influence of the older neoplatonism which was upon the whole by no means unhealthy but in the sixth century when the shadows of night were beginning to fall we come into contact with a much more questionable phenomenon the influence of procleonism which gathering up and giving shape to a phase of feeling never wholly absent from the church and already conspicuous in clement and the monks gave birth to mysticism this begins for literature with dionysus the areopagite who this author was is not known but his date can be fixed with tolerable accuracy his works were quoted in a conference held at constantinople under justinian in 532 on the other hand they are steeped in the peculiar terminology of proclus and presuppose the rudiments of that philosopher a work which cannot well have been composed before 440 he calls himself dionysius the priest and represents himself as the friend of timothy and titus as the contemporary of the apostles as a disciple of hierotheus the pupil of st paul my teacher he calls him after paul he does not speak either of athens or of the areopagus but in the first mention that we have of him he is styled the areopagite whether it was his intention to pass himself off as the converted athenian judge may be doubted he speaks of himself as having been at heliopolis in egypt on the day of the crucifixion and we should hardly expect to find an areopagite there in any case the domino may have been merely an odd piece of mystic self-denial in the letter to demophilus it is dropped entirely and possibly dionysius himself would have been greatly surprised to learn that his harmless masquerade had been taken seriously but it made him the patron saint of france dionysius starts with the chains the triplets of proclus above all stands the trinity beneath this is the celestial hierarchy a square of three triplets one thrones cherubim seraphim two powers dominions mites three angels archangels principalities beneath this again comes the earthly hierarchy one three sacraments baptism eucharist ointment two three ecclesiastical orders deacon priest bishop three three lay orders non-communicants communicants monks in each of these triplets the lowest member is put first right through the hierarchies flows down the triple grace of purification enlightenment and perfection the higher links of the chain passing it on to the lower with dionysius as with proclus philosophy has no place at all in the religious life the object of contemplation is purely ecclesiastical further it will be observed how between the superessential saviour and man is interposed a long-drawn procession on earth of officers symbols rites in heaven of angels in interminable sequence the object is to provide the soul with a staircase 
up which it may climb from mystery to mystery from star to star till it reaches the very fount of light the result is to shut out the penitent from his redeemer and to give the mystic so much to dream about that he has no time to do anything the length of the upward path spun out through endless genealogies is a common but not universal feature of mysticism it has no justification either in scripture or in philosophy nor has mysticism any necessary connection direct or indirect with metaphysics properly so called sometimes as in plotinus it has a direct connection growing naturally out of the speculations sometimes it has a negative or indirect connection it is a recoil pious souls grow weary of the debates of the schools and take refuge in positive affirmations but the great mystics the hebrew and christian prophets knew nothing whatever about the perplexities of the intelligence in fact mysticism appears to have but two essential features the belief in the possibility of contact with the personality of god and the denial of evil which must be regarded either as in itself non-existent or as practically abolished before the contact takes place both the belief and the denial are common to all religious people. The question is only when evil ceases to be. The Areopagite starts with metaphysics, but only like Proclus to kick down the ladder by which he mounted. He is the prince of mystics, because he expounds the rationale of his belief with perfect simplicity, without the least attempt to compromise with theology. God himself is a trinity, whose first manifestations are being, life and wisdom. This again is a Proclean triplet. He is the absolute above all essence and all knowledge such knowledge as we have of him is derived entirely from scripture it has two branches according as it is directed to his operations or his self accordingly we express our knowledge in two ways by position or by abstraction that is to say by analogies as when we call him father king life light reason or by negations as when we call him infinite timeless immaterial the latter is the higher and better method and the task of the perfected believer is to rise up above all symbols and metaphors to the bare idea from ignorance draping itself in words to ignorance confessed to penetrate the darkness in which god dwells on the secret heights of sinai to dionysius darkness means formlessness and is metaphysical but with other mystics it often bears a moral sense and expresses the believer's impatience with the confusions not of thought but of life the upward path is made possible by love the inner light and the word for love is no longer agape but eros eros is a platonic term but in the mouth of the mystic it is no longer purely ideal it has become sensuous and passionate and expresses the desire of one personality to merge into another the change is marked by the famous phrase of ignatius my love is crucified which dionysius quotes at the expense of an anachronism but more distinctly still by the free use of the song of songs which inspired the amatory hymns of hierotheus and was always a favorite book with the mystics here we trace the same syrian influences that shaped the thoughts of iamblichus and proclus hierotheus is probably to be identified with barsudaeli an edessan monophysite abbot of the fifth century the yearning of the soul for the risen lord is distinctively christian at the same time it is the only result left of the humanity of jesus for in the mind of dionysius the sacraments the life the passion are mere symbols they belong to the earthly hierarchy and must be left behind this belief that it is possible to mount above all ordinances all law all doctrine is the common property of the mystics and tended more and more as discipline grew stricter and the church more corrupt 
to embroil them with the authorities indeed mysticism is to be regarded almost universally as a revolt not against difficulties of belief but against the wickedness of the times and the inability of the church to bridle the world about her in mysticism eros is the only moral link left between god and man in other words the one point on which rests the personality of either for evil and with it justice and responsibility are blotted out entirely from the mind of dionysius there cannot he says be two principles all is of god the only difference is that those things which partake more of god are nearer to him evil is nothing it cannot be and therefore cannot act the greek philosophers from heraclitus downwards thought that what we call physical evil might be necessary to the sum of things but dionysius denies this life may indeed be said to come out of death but if you look closer it is not the death which produces life but the living force enduring through and fed by the dissolution of the organism there is no such thing as a bad nature take away from the lion its ferocity and you rob the creature of the safeguard given to it by its creator vice is mistaken virtue all is good what we call evil is merely inability to discharge the proper functions of the divinely fashioned nature hence justice is that whereby god preserves each essence intact in its appointed station and enables it to do its proper work this is pure platonism and dionysius treats the theme without a single reference to the atonement thus the mystic as plutarch says jumps off his own shadow indeed dionysius like proclus does not think it possible that the cross or any other agency can change the mind of god we draw near to him but he never draws near to us because he is everywhere and changes not hence in a well-known passage prayer is compared to a chain of light let down from heaven as we climb up it hand over hand we seem to draw the chain down but really draw ourselves up or again to the cable of a ship it is fastened to a rock and as the mariner hauls upon it he seems but only seems to pull the rock nearer to his boat the beauty of the areopagite's expression must not disguise from us the fact that his whole view is pantheistic thus by another road we have come back to universalism origen insists upon freedom dionysius abolishes it origen takes his start from justice which to dionysius has little or no meaning but to both god is end as well as beginning and the goal coincides but these dry abstracts of thought are no better than a hortus siccus in which all the perfume of the flower is evaporated mysticism is the paradox of paradoxes nothing is easier to jibe at yet in all its extravagances there is something that lies very close to the heart of christianity it seems so barren yet directly or indirectly what force there was in francis or bernard or bonaventura or grossetet or archempis let us listen to the story of carpus and see what the real dionysius was here we shall find the key to the contradiction carpus was a man of crete so favored by god that he never celebrated the eucharist without enjoying a vision of heavenly bliss yet once the saint had violated the law of love and he told dionysius how he had been chastised for his sin one of his converts had been seduced back into heathenism by an unregenerate comrade there must have been something peculiarly distressing in the circumstances for carpus was so deeply shocked that instead of praying for the two sinners as he ought to have done he was filled with wrath in this agitation of mind he retired to rest and after a brief and troubled slumber rose at midnight to perform his usual devotions but his anger was still hot within him 
and on his knees he begged god to blast with his thunderbolts both the tempter and the tempted scarce had he framed this dreadful petition when the house seemed to be riven asunder and a blaze of unearthly light shone all around raising his eyes he saw jesus seated on the ridge of heaven encompassed by angels in human form but looking down he beheld the two wretches whom he had cursed staggering on the brink of a hideous gulf out of the pit came serpents and shadows as of men who hauled and dragged cozened and fascinated the unhappy pair so that half resisting half consenting they were tumbling into the abyss carpus gazed on their peril with fierce delight and cursed them again because they had not yet perished but once more he raised his eyes jesus had stepped down from his throne in pity and was holding out his arms the angels also were clinging to the two sinners and pulling them back from the precipice then the lord spoke to carpus reach out thy hand and smite me for i am ready once more to suffer for the salvation of men do thou see to it whether thou wouldst rather dwell with god and the good and merciful angels or with the dragons in the pit the works of dionysius were translated into latin by scotus erigena in the ninth century and again by john of salisbury in the twelfth from this date his influence parts into two streams one more philosophical the other more religious one his work fell in with those other causes which produced the great pantheistic outburst of the twelfth century these were the streaming in from sicily and afterwards more fully from spain of the arabian and jewish aristotelianism which under the influence of neoplatonism and orientalism had assumed a strongly pantheistic cast with aristotle came the decausis which is in fact the rudiments of proclus and the fons vitae of the jew avicebron the mixture of this perilous stuff with mohammedanism had led everywhere to violent explosions the doctrine of avicenna says macrisi brought upon religion disasters too terrible for words it served only to foster the errors of heretics and added to their impiety fresh impiety ghazali al ghazel led the revolt as the champion of orthodox mysticism and succeeded in destroying philosophy in the east in spain the writings of ibn roche averroes provoked another violent outbreak of persecution and here too the license of thought was suppressed by the arm of the law from spain the cyclone moved on through provence into the french schools towards the end of the twelfth century david of dinan and amaury of chartres or de Benne, taught that god is all and that all is god a heresy which was traced back by gerson to the audacious scotus ergina who had borrowed it from a monk named maximus maximus was the well-known commentator on dionysius amaury himself professed to have learnt what he taught from the epistles of st paul but he was the disciple not only of dionysius but of another famous mystic joachim of flora fiore in calabria who spoke of rome as the whore of babylon and prophesied the advent of the third age the age of the holy ghost when all sacerdotalism was to be swept away the pantheism of the amalricians brought them into direct collision with the church it taught that the holy spirit was as truly in ovid as in st augustine and that all sacraments are dead forms nine of the disciples of amaury were burnt by the council of paris in 1210 and the reading of the physics and metaphysics of aristotle was for a time prohibited but roachitism lingered long in the south of france and the infection clung to the schools of paris as late as 1276 etienne tampier bishop of paris complains that some of his students maintained that things might be true in philosophy 
though not true according to the catholic faith as if there were two truths and as if against the truth of scripture there were truth in the sayings of damned gentiles the danger to the church was undoubtedly very great and the danger to philosophy was hardly less but it fell in the thirteenth century an age not of decay but of regeneration most fruitful in great men and great achievements it was averted for the time not by sword or fagot though both were freely employed but by the stirring life which brought forth the great dominican teachers albert and thomas and the powerful orders of the friars but those who wish to pursue the interesting and in england little known history of scholasticism must be referred to the works of bachereau jourdain oreo and renaud see also history of the inquisition in the middle ages by h c lear new york harper brothers eighteen eighty eight two nor can we do more than point out authorities for the history of mysticism from the days of the new testament prophets it has never been wholly absent from the church it has manifested itself at times in wild revolt but for the strong hand of st paul the corinthian prophets would have rent the church into pieces and the history of the montanists of the fraticelli of the anabaptists shows how fiery and explosive the inner light may be when heated by contagion and opposition mysticism is always a protesting spirit but in our western world it has shown upon the whole neither the taste nor the capacity for organizing multitudes it is too fastidious too sensitive too fond of reverie the church would be nothing without it for it is the spirit of the prophet and of the saint but it can neither form nor sustain a church for this is the work of the priest there is properly speaking no history of the mystics only biographies they are like a chain of stars each separated from the other by a gulf we can trace resemblances even connections but they themselves tell us that the light comes direct from the sun and is not passed on at all yet the mystic usually reads books and the beacon of dionysius or joachim or toller wakes the kindred soul across seas or centuries a dry history of the french victorines will be found in oreo the troubles of the spiritual franciscans are recorded by milman neander and lee german mysticism is the theme of many learned works which are enumerated in the dogmen geschichte of dr harnack and the lives of saint bernard akempis fenelon madame de guillon and swedenborg are readily accessible those who are interested in the subject will not fail to read vaughan's hours with the mystics two books within easy reach of english readers are the dark night of the soul by st john of the cross and the immortal de imitatione the former shows us mysticism at its worst the latter is above all praise a good account of the relation of akempis to earlier mystics will be found in the story of the imitatio christi by mr leonard a wheatley end of section twenty five end of neoplatonism by charles big everybody in your crew identifies as either big mac burger mcnuggets or mccrispy sandwich but you're the filet fish sandwich all day that crispy fish that savory tartar sauce that melty cheese that pillowy bun yeah you get it every time and if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just six dollars limited time only price and participation may vary cannot be combined with any other offer single item at regular price Ba da ba ba ba